The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell here to discuss five years since the hashtag MeToo went globally viral in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein story in the New York Times. As one of my closest friends and the former executive editor of Teen Vogue, Samita Mukhopadhyay. Good morning. And a new book. What's the the new book coming out? The title of that. Tell me what that is. I had uh, it's called right. The Myth of Making It. Yes, The um, Myth of Making It. I, I didn't about, want to say it wrong. Um, you know what's com- what comes after quote unquote girl boss feminism. I'm here for it because I'm not trying to be a girl boss anymore. I want to take a nap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good morning. Um, so I want to start our conversation kind of where we started our most recent conversation about five years of the hashtag Me Too. Uh, movement and we recently had a conversation for the meteor newsletter and when we started that conversation was where we were before October of 2017 when that New York Times story broke about Harvey Weinstein and everyone was tweeting hashtag me too and it went viral because there was actually a lot (laughs) that came before it and that's where I want to start so take us through some of the things that were happening offline and online before hashtag me too um and why that's actually important as we reflect on the last five years yeah um uh you know i think like one of the things i was reflecting on um when i was thinking about the anniversary was just how long we've kind of been doing this work and how it was like really exciting to have this moment where it was almost like this public tipping point, right? Where we had always kind of been in the corner being like, women are being sexually assaulted. This is how this trauma like, you know, impacts our lives. This is how this impacts, you know, the future of women in college and all of these places we were trying to raise awareness. And it often felt like, you know, it was considered really outrageous to kind of bring up these topics. And, um, you know, I thought back to first, like, you know, since the 1970s, the kind of take back the night movement. And then even when kind of, I think, digital feminism started to really um, take control at the turn of the century, um, you know, in the early 2000s, when women started using these tools to really talk about the experience they had. Um, And I considered kind of just five years before 2017, when you know, you had kind of come forward and talked about, um, you know, rape culture and how we should be talking about rape culture. Um, You know, we had some pretty big viral moments at that point where people were starting to really come forward and talk about what was happening. But often we were still, as happened to you when you spoke publicly, we were gaslit, we were ridiculed, we were told it was, you know, not appropriate to bring it up all the time. And so, you know, it was just interesting to see what's happened in the last 10 years and how five years ago was really this tipping point, um, but it really elevated work that had been happening for decades. I think about that a lot because 
even when the hashtag, you know, hashtag me too took off, I mean, the work of uh, even just talking to Gerana Burke, when her book um, was released, her memoir, and she was talking about the conflicted emotion she felt when she started receiving messages, you know, from everyone about the fact that, you know, me too is trending worldwide, globally. Um, and the fact that basically, you know, the folks that were getting credited for starting it were like, you know, Alyssa Milano and, um, you know, white women who did not start Me Too, right? Because Toronto had started it um, basically 10 years, well, I guess it's 15 years ago now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of the problem was the focus on certain stories um, and, and the erasure of the work that came before it, including Tarana's work. And I think even talking to her about that process of sort of feeling upset and, and conflicted and then realizing like, no, this is a moment where I'm going to lean into it and say, no, I created this hashtag and let's go. Like, you know what I mean? Like instead of, you know, feeling angry or, you know, upset about the fact that she wasn't getting sort of credit right in the in the mm -hmm. outset um mm -hmm. she she decided instead to utilize the attention on the work and focus on the work which i think is not just admirable but it is it is something of course that she would do and i think that is really important i mean in terms of what actually me too did right if we just take us back to what was what happened at the time so the harvey weinstein story breaks in the New York Times, all hell breaks loose. And what happens on the internet? <laughs> Help remind us what what actually happened when the hashtag yeah. went viral. Cause I just, it was like overnight. It was like Harvey Weinstein comes out and then all of a sudden my entire timeline on every single social media app, everyone is doing the same thing. They're all writing their own stories. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, I, I think the way that you frame that is exactly right where, you know, it could have been um, really easy in that moment to be like, well, women have been kind of coming forward with these stories. Why are we paying attention now? Um, and I think what made that moment so powerful was, first of all, um, as Tarana says herself, the women, the celebrities that came forward, they were also survivors, right? Like right. They, they are also famous um, and they had followings. And so people kind of were forced to face um, you know, the consequences of toxic, patriarchal, abusive behavior in Hollywood in a way that we've never had to before, but they were also survivors, you know? Um, and so the movement belongs to them as much as it belonged to anybody. And I think, you know, what happened in that moment, I, I mean, I still remember to this day, um, you know, it felt like a really big tipping point because all of a sudden people that had never talked publicly about being sexually assaulted, um, people that had, you know, never maybe even admitted it in their own lives were coming forward and sharing their stories. Um, and I just, I remember feeling, you know, and I'm sure you went through this too, just like this palpable, like, wow, like we can never go back from this. Like once these stories are out there, no one can say they didn't know that one in three women are actually survivors or, you know, one in however many men are survivors of sexual assault. And these are the experiences they had. And I think that and, and, and the way that that built community, I mean, it was like weeks and weeks of people coming forward with stories um, that were inspired by seeing the courageous kind of speaking out of so many, so many different people. And, but I was also anxious. I was like, mm -hmm. what is all of this going to do? Mm -hmm. Right. Like all of these people are going to share their stories 
there's consequences to that, as you know firsthand. Once you talk publicly about this, there there is like you can't bring the story back in. And also, you know, it puts you out there and 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 kind of opens you up for attack and criticism and, you know, gaslighting and all of those things. And so I was really anxious that that energy would somehow backfire on us. Um, and, you know, in some ways it has, but I think the benefits have really outweighed um, what we are in now, which is amidst a backlash, right? We are we are amidst a backlash and and a kind of cultural frustration that, you know, Me Too has muzzled like romance. And, you know, it's like nobody wants to go to work anymore. And like men can't just have work dinners with women because apparently a prerequisite to that was the ability to, you know, engage in some kind of problematic behavior at that dinner. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think that's that, 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 you know, despite that, um, and, you know, you were asking, like, what are some of the things that have happened since then? I mean, A, like, just the way that we talk about sexual assault and our sexual abuse, the fact that it has kind of been normalized to talk about it, to kind of move towards a culture that believes women. Um, but also, you know, you're starting to see certain reforms. Like, you know, I had read that um, they started using intimacy coordinators on um, mm-hmm. TV sets, right? When yep. you have a sex scene. And so, you know, to make sure that everybody is comfortable and present and like every moment of it is consensual and all of those things. And so I think there are, you know, reforms, there's state level laws, sexual discrimination laws that are coming out, workplace harassment protections. So I do think that it has had ripple effects throughout the culture. And it was kind of this moment that just like we peeled back this layer and all of this kind of like all of these stories that we had been repressing for generations, for lifetimes, um, finally had a chance to kind of see the light of day. It's so important. And one of the things you mentioned leads me to my next question, which is about the reason why the backlash is happening. And part of the reason why I think the backlash is happening is because we didn't know what to do. Like everybody, you know, as you said, people were just telling their stories. And then there has to be a consequence. In, especially in cases where people are alleging a crime has taken place. Like there's, we have processes if there has you know, been a crime that has taken place, like an actual assault that you could go to the police and you know, report it and then go through the, that process. Now, most people don't go through that process. And I would argue most of the people that were telling their stories were not even telling it w- with the intention of that being the process like they they weren't telling their stories because they want somebody to go to jail they were telling their stories because you know our culture silences survivors and makes them feel ashamed to talk about their stories and makes them feel like it was their fault so they don't want to share their stories and so there was a dynamic where i feel like people were were sharing their stories but in our society accountability and sort of what comes next is always a question and we didn't know so can you talk a bit about how in the outset, you know, people were like being held accountable, like people were losing their jobs and livelihoods and their status in society and, you know, their celebrity status because of allegations, um, not necessarily going to like to a jail um, and certainly, you know, not with any, you know, rapid speed, right? <laughs> like nobody was like, as soon as somebody came out, they were going to jail the next day. Like that's not what was happening, but there was an attempt at least for accountability. So a lot in the beginning, people were like losing their jobs and then everyone freaked out about that because they were like, wait, every story is not the same. Like Bill Cosby is not the same as, you know, um, somebody who is 
putting their hand on somebody's waist without their consent. Those two stories are not the same. So they, you know, those two people should not be punished in the same way. Can you talk a bit about why the backlash, you know, has developed? Because we don't really have a clear guide on what should happen to somebody <laughs> um, who has been accused credibly of, of sexual misconduct or some form of sexual assault. Yeah. You know, um, I think one of the interesting things that that happened in that moment was, you know, there's this assumption that sexual abuse and sexual assault are private matters. They're matters that, you know, you can kind of count on people not to share their stories. And so, you know, powerful men had consistently been able to get away with it because they knew they had, you know, control and they knew they had power. And, you know, in the case of like a Harvey Weinstein or a Bill Cosby, like tremendous amounts of institutional power, entire networks that were protecting them, like everybody around them knew this was happening, right? They were facilitating and kind of aiding and abetting. And so I think there was a bit of a disbelief that in that moment, you couldn't get away with that anymore on some level, right? Um, and I think that the response to that, you know, similar to, I think, you know, when we look at anything that uh, includes the testifying and storytelling of disenfranchised communities is there's already institutions in place to silence women, right? Like, mm -hmm. the, it's not that like Me Too, all of a sudden we were like, oh, you know, it's really hard to come forward. The criminal justice system does not actually have, you know, a proper way to talk to and handle and, you know, work with survivors. Um, there's a literal legal standard. And I think, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's work, um, the kind of critical race scholar, um, Kimberly Crenshaw, her work is really instrumental in this, in that like the laws are really created to silence women, to to put the benefit of the doubt on women, especially black women. And, you know, and so like the infrastructure was already there to kind of have a backlash. It's almost yeah. like, you know, we made this like tiny little dent and in, you know, really the public conversation. I mean, the statistics with which women are still sexually assaulted is still, you know, one in three women are, you know, um, ha have the potential to be sexually assaulted in their lifetime, college students, you know. So I think like that's the way that the public conversation then, you know, all of a sudden you have all these media outlets focusing on backlash and you have them, uh, sorry, you're focusing on false accusations, right? Um, the right having like a full scale war on being like, you know, well, if this person can say it, then anyone can falsely accuse, you know, these men of doing this. How can we prove it? How do we know that they've done it? And, you know, and it's, it's a disingenuous talking point, mm -hmm. right? We know that there are very few benefits to coming forward and talking about, uh, you know, uh, you know, talking about being a survivor, um, you know, you subject yourself to harassment, you subject, you know, so we know that statistically, most people don't lie when they come forward with these stories. Um, but we also know that like, that's not what really happened, right? Like the most of the stories weren't that like someone, you know, levied a false accusation and therefore they lost their job. If anything, you know, people doubled down and many men were able to kind of protect themselves even further by, you know, using the legal system to kind of protect themselves. And so I think that's what's interesting, this idea of backlash, because you'll even hear people say like, yeah, well, it's gone too far. And you're like, what does that mean? Because people are talking about it and this kind of outweighed importance of the cultural conversation versus the actual institution pieces that have changed, which, you know, haven't really. It's, it's so important to talk about this because I think that, you know, it, it allows us to to figure out what could be the right way. Because we don't know that we don't we don't have all the answers about how to process stories on a 
mac uh, on the macro level like on the micro level i i sort of understand and i talked to you about this when we spoke for the newsletter i on the sort of interpersonal level i believe that we can change this i believe that people that come forward you know to you um and if no one has ever you know disclosed to you that they've been a victim of sexual assault it's because they don't feel safe enough to tell you probably so that's some sort you know introspection required for you um if that's you at home and no shade but um but if somebody is you know coming forward to you as a friend or family member or colleague and you know saying i i think something happened to me i think it might have been assault because usually people are not sure in that first disclosure um because it's very confusing um you know, you're just going to say, I'm sorry that happened. How can I help? That's all you're going to say. There's no judgment. You're not on the jury. You're not the judge. You're not the prosecutor. You're not doing any interrogations. You're just going to be there to support the person. And I think that on the interpersonal level, I have faith that we can transform that. And to your point, on the macro level, we we have no idea. <laughs> We're like, mm-hmm. should, do we fire people? Should we they lose only their jobs? Should they be banned and and put into exile? Like, we're not sure what to do because we're we're definitely not sending them to jail. We've basically decided that we're not going to be doing that. I mean, that that you know, we we don't do a great job of prosecuting people uh, generally for for these kinds of crimes. Um, I think it's like three percent of rapists ever spend us one single day in jail. So that's not the the mechanism through which we have chosen. But in sort of that other space of like firing or, you know, losing your show or, um, you know, maybe losing that income or money from whatever job you had, like those are sort of the in-between places where we were attempting to hold people accountable. Like people had shows and now they don't, right? But it, it felt like people reacted to that as as if that was like so severe, like that's the worst that could happen to those people. Like they don't have a national TV show. It's so, I feel so sad for that person. I'm like, I really don't because like they, you know, they were alleged to have harmed people in very serious ways and should probably be prosecuted for that, but they're not. They just lost like their employment. So can you speak Mm -hmm. to the fact that like, because there's this full spectrum of stories, you know, everything from Bill Cosby to something all the way on the other end, very, that's, that's just like an unwanted touching or sexual harassment or an off-color joke in the workplace that we don't we don't yet have a clear path for accountability in those instances that are not like you know a, a drug facilitated sexual assault like you know or something like that, more severe yeah absolutely I mean, Zerlina, you said this yourself, right, on Fox News 10 years ago. Um, what does it look like to teach men not to rape, right? Um, and I think that, you know, obviously there's like the legal standards and uh, evidentiary standards that you're kind of talking about or the kind of double standard. Like when someone tells you that their car was stolen, you're not like, are you sure? It's like, no, I, <laughs> like. <laughs> How dare yes, you I'm have sure. belongings? Why yeah, are you outside you know, with, belo- you know, with items? <laughs> exactly and and that's not you know for whatever reason women are never given the benefit of the doubt when they're um sexual assault survivors and they've been sexually assaulted there's always like are you sure were you drunk i mean all of the things you kind of said in in the conversation we had last week um so i think that that's you know when you think about this kind of like holistic approach um to kind of how do we a normalize kind of talking about these 
situations. Cause like you said, there's different things. There's people that like the kind of Bill, Bill Cosby level where you are, have this like, you know, larger than life, powerful man who like can have access to anything he wants in the world. And, you know, is able to kind of use that power and use that position and the legal system and money and all of the different things that he used to silence women and continue his predatory behavior. Then you have somebody, you know, um, that might be your colleague and there's an uncomfortable interaction that happens and there isn't a process through which you can have, you know, some type of conversation or some type of review or some type of, you know, kind of engagement that's like, this is how this made me feel. Like, what do we have to do to make this workplace safe again? Right. And you see all of these, like, you know, there's like sexual harassment trainings right now and people are like, you know, they like wink, wink, sleep their way through it and sign the certificate and they kind of move on. But, you know, if we actually want to heal, like, what does it mean to actually tackle and create a culture of consent and to create a culture that is not assuming that we need some kind of legal intervention or we need some kind of like wait until something bad happens or that rape culture is in some way inherent? Because I do Mm. think there is, you know, the kind of solutions driven, criminal justice driven solutions to this assumes that it's going to happen anyway. To a certain extent, of course, it is. But what does it mean to actually, and I'm really inspired, I do think like younger kind of Gen Z are having much more kind of forward conversations about what consent looks like. What is a culture of consent? What is enthusiastic consent? Um, And, you know, what does that mean in the workplace? Because like, of course, people like meet and date in the workplace and, you know, all of these kinds of standards that I think um, have been made awkward and we feel uncomfortable talking about it. And it's like, how, like, how do you deal with a situation that's not, you know, it doesn't raise the bar of like legal intervention, but it still made you uncomfortable. You went out to mm-hmm. dinner with somebody and this guy like made a comment and it made you uncomfortable. Like, how do you deal with that? What are the processes in place? What are the systems in place that allow us to kind of deal with things like that? And so that's what I'm kind of really interested in. And also like you, it gives me hope because I do think that there's a new new awareness about this. And um, I don't think like if you talk to anybody like offline, like no one's like, oh yeah, that person was falsely accused. That's a great thing. Or like that person doesn't have any power. And like, we are having these complex conversations internally, right? Like we are aware that we were put in the unfortunate position where we had to rank abuse. Like we had to be mm-hmm. like, who's the worst and who is the best, right? Like, <laughs> like, we, you know, like right? Like we literally, and, and that's like such an uncomfortable and strange thing, but like, you know, it's like, we know. And it's often, you know, flattened by the right because it's a really easy talking point to be like, oh, this is a witch hunt. And it's like, no. Most survivors know. That's why some survivors make the decision not to get have um, the criminal justice system involved, right? Like, because they're like, this was confusing and I'd rather a different process or a system to address or ameliorate the damages that have happened. It's such an important point. And I feel like I had a really, really um, fascinating conversation at, you know, a few years into, um, so it wasn't, it was maybe like three years ago. Um, I think in like 2018 and it was at Harvard with Dahlia Lithwick and Gabe Sherman and I think another person from like Jezebel maybe but I can't remember her name Um, and the conversation was like what are the journalistic standards for reporting on cases of sexual assault in this environment and at the time it was right after um, the strangely reported firsthand-ish account um, but it was like written by a friend. So it was like really convoluted the way the story came out of the, about a specific comedian that I won't even cite. Cause I think maybe that's even unfair in this particular moment. Um, but 
basically the conversation we're having is like, what are the ethical standards of reporting on these kinds of things? And I think that's an important question because I do think that, you know, there should be a standard, an ethical standard for how a story is told and put into the public domain. But do you think that there was too much of a focus on that as opposed to what I was talking about earlier, which is sort of the interpersonal way we're responding to these stories? There's one like a media organization can have standards for how they're going to report out a story of sexual assault. But you should not have the same standard as The New York Times for how you are going to take in a story that your relative or friend or colleague is telling you like that. For me, I feel like our missions were are a little different. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. But, you know, I mean, how many of our conversations with people are like rigorously fact-checked and copy it, you know, like all of the kind of things that go into make something reported. And, you know, I think, um, and most activists and sexual um, anti-rape activists will say this, you know, the media is, 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 is a tool to help support and elevate these stories. But the media is also not the legal system. Like the media can't, um, you know, like they can't actually run something that's factually inaccurate or that is complex or that's unnecessarily slanderous. You know, there are certain standards. And one of the most difficult things about um, reporting on sexual abuse is like often you have to reach out to the assailant you have to reach out to the accused and get a statement from them as well which you know is similar to what happens in the legal system but that can be a really challenging and difficult person for a, a situation for a survivor right mm -hmm. um and but i i think those you know like you point out those ethical and fact-checking standards are so fundamental and important to our sense of um you know to our sense of fairness and credibility um but th that is different that is a different kind of mechanism and set of tools than just women and uh, survivors sharing stories amongst each other and the kind of community that's required to allow those stories to come out and to allow people to feel seen and to feel heard in those stories. And um, I think that it's really easy to confuse those two things. Like often you see people petitioning media to reflect some of the values that are normalized in like social settings, right? Or politics that we believe like, well, we know this is true, you know, but the mm -hmm. way that um, that works. And, and, and there's a reason for that, right? Like there's a reason that we have these kind of laws and standards and ethical kind of duties as journalists to fairly depict subjects, because those are the kinds of things that when you start overlooking them, uh, they always end up hurting who the like most impacted communities, yeah. right? Uh, you know, and so I think it's really important to kind of have both of those things. And I understand the frustration with it. Not everybody understands like what goes behind making something reported and the level at which something needs to be fact checked. Um, but those protections are ultimately there to protect vulnerable people as well. It's a really, really important point. It's a it's a fascinating conversation in, you know, happening in the media, um, but also this this larger conversation that we've had this morning about the five-year anniversary, it's weird to, word to use, but five years since the Harvey Weinstein story broke and hashtag me too went globally viral, um, but 10 years after Tarana Burke first started it. Um, Samita Mukhopadhyay, thank you so much for being here to help us talk through this on our um, second, I think, installment of Feminist Friday. Um, it's something <laughs> that I, I, I just, I stole it from feministing. <laughs> um, kind of like it's it's de it's definitely an homage, an homage um, to um, the original the originals <laughs> <laughs> um, and author of the forthcoming book the myth of making it which everybody should buy and stop trying to be a girl boss because like it's not worth it We're take it from us 
okay? Yeah. <laughs> it ain't worth it, yo, okay? Don't do it. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, it was great to talk to you, and I love you. We're, I love we're you. actually real friends. Listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. 